So if anyone is new here at Toprock Church, you'll realize that uh, we are different uh, and strange and weird and funny. And uh, at least I, I mean, people say I'm not funny, but everybody else is funny. And we love doing what we do because God is a God of joy. He's a God of happiness. He's a God of justice. He's a God of holiness. And so when we get together, we see all of those things happen. And it's cool and it's amazing. And we're not bound by a schedule. We're not bound by a routine. We come here for one thing on a Sunday morning, and that's to worship our King. And so if something was different to the way a normal service would go for you, or maybe you've been in church and you've gone to church and you expect things to run a particular way and things were different today, celebrate the differences. It's nothing to be scared of. God moves and He's God and He does what He wants to do. And I do want to just commend the band. These guys prepared well for today. And man, we prayed that they would be anointed to lead us in worship and they did such an amazing job. And so I just want to just honor those guys and women for putting the time, the effort, and the energy that goes into leading us so well. And for all of you who are the worship team, it's so beautiful to stand up here in front and actually hear people's voices beyond the band. You know, to hear you worshiping, because ultimately you're worshiping your king. And so I'm just excited. God is doing a new thing, and we love it. And I just want to just say thank you, Lord. Uh, This is obviously our grand opening, which is uh, weird because we actually opened the space two months ago. But... You know, I mean, again, we're weird. So two months later, here we are opening the venue. If you did travel in here to come and celebrate the grand opening with us, like Yuli, you know, uh, both of you. I mean, my gosh, where did you guys just arrive from? You know, from Florida. Hallelujah, man. We want to honor you guys. You came here just for this, right? Amen. You see? That's how amazing it is. Uh, I also want to honor the Boyds. They came from really, really, really far from Scotland. Uh, no, I'm joking. They were from Scotland, but they actually live in Katy, Texas now. You guys are awesome. Thank you for coming. When I say the boys, I include you, Sydney, and your sister too. It's not just your parents. You also came all the way here, and you got to spend the evening with us last night. So I'm really, really grateful for you because that's really tough. Uh, and I just do want to say that we are very excited. I, I did thank everybody that made this venue possible many months ago when we actually opened it. But I do want to just thank every one of you. Because the last two months, you know, trying to figure out how it's going to work with this venue and that venue and the kids there and us here and security and this and that. All of you have just come together. We've got some amazing advice from people and everyone has made this work. And so this is not something that we could produce on our own. This is a team effort. And so if you are part of Hope Rock Church and you volunteer in any capacity, or even if you don't volunteer in any capacity, but you've got great advice, I want to thank you just for being amazing and for serving in this church. The church is not built by any one individual. It is built by the body of Christ, the priesthood of all believers, all working together. So you guys deserve to give yourselves a hand. Okay, you can do it. There we go. So in America, I realize you call that thing a hand clap, a hand clap. It's always strange to me. Thank you for feeding back on the ladies' retreat. Love, you are awesome, you're amazing, you're beautiful, and you're special. And God's got a big plan for your life. Amen. Last week, Sunday, Minda, who came from the retreat, who is married to Paul Nichols, they planted a church in Detroit called Border City Church. And I just want you to be praying for them as a church. Planting a church in a city like Detroit is never easy. And so please keep them in your prayers. But she was there for the ladies, and she... Uh, bless them in abundance, and I'm sad that we didn't get to have them both here and to hear from them more. But Minda did share a word with this church last week, Sunday morning, and I want to reiterate it a little bit because today is a bit of a celebration. And what she said came from a passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 1. I want to read it real quick. It says, Because of God's tender mercy, the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us. The morning light from heaven is about to break upon us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide us to the path of peace. And what Minda shared with us last week Sunday 
And I love recalling prophetic words and words of encouragement because it reminds us of what God has said to us. Is she said that she felt like the Lord was telling her that there is a dawning of a new day here at Hope Rock Church. And even though sometimes, I don't know if you've ever watched the sunrise, it can be dark at the moment the sun starts to rise. And maybe we're in that phase where it's not completely light yet or not. But the sense is that she said that God is going to be turning up the light. And it's this new day and it's ever-increasing light that God is going to bring to this church and use through this church to shine in places of darkness. And I love it. And I love what Cameron said this morning. There's another confirmation of that word because the light that this church is going to shine is not just to shine in our own circumstances. It's not to shine so that we can see more clearly. It's to shine so that we can bring light to dark places in our city, light to people that perhaps have never seen the light. And that is a word that excites me. And as I was thinking about this word this week and preparing for this morning and thinking about what all God has done throughout our lives and as a church, I couldn't help but think to myself, what a faithful God we serve. And I'm saying that on the backdrop of how this year started for us. We started every, we start every year, generally now, with a prayer and fasting weekend. We've got one coming up in January again, 6th to 8th of January. And since all of you guys are here, I expect all of you guys to be a part of it. Uh, I'm just kidding, but I do. Um, God said something to me. I felt like he spoke to me and he gave us a word for a church. And if you're here and you've been here long enough, you'll remember that. The word was that we are going where we've never been before. It's a word that came from Joshua chapter, four, Joshua chapter 3 and verse 4. And the context of that word is the nation of Israel is standing on the edge of the Jordan River. They've been wandering the desert for 40 years. Um, they've been waiting to get into the promised land. Moses has died, and now Joshua is given the command by God to take on the inheritance. An entire generation of people have died. In other words, they've come and they've gone, right? And the sense was that the time to cross the Jordan is here. But Joshua says something interesting. He says to the people, you know, navigating where you've never been before is almost impossible, right? Because you don't know where you're going. And so you're not going to know how to get into the promised land. You're not going to know how to cross the river Jordan. So he says to them, make sure that as you go across the Jordan and as you go into this promised land, you keep your eyes on the Ark of the Covenant. And the sense that I had at the prayer and fasting weekend was that for us as a church, God was taking us into new ground, ground that we didn't really understand, to be honest. You know, when God says he's doing something new, it's because it's new. And so we don't know what it is. You know, and, and the sense was that in order for us to get where God was taking us, we had to keep our eyes on Jesus. We had to hear what he was saying, do what he wanted us to, follow where he wanted us to go. And so that's what we've tried to do this entire year. And in fact, this building is one great example of that. God spoke to us, purposed in our heart that it was time for us to move into a new space. And so we trusted God, we followed Jesus, and here we are. I mean, isn't that powerful? God moves us, and when he says he's taking us somewhere, he takes us. Now, the sense there is that we've actually crossed over into our promised land. There's a sense that a new day has dawned on Hope Rock Church, that we've come through this phase that we were in, and now God is starting to reveal to us the things that He has in store for us, the inheritances that He's created for this church. Now, I do want to say that going into a promised land, even though it's a victory in a sense because we finally come out into what God has promised us, it doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. Going into a promised land inherently means that there's going to be new obstacles, new giants to face. Remember, the nation of Israel crossed into you know, Jericho, their first city. What did they have to do? Fight the biggest city they've ever fought against. And then after that, they've got to face giants and defeat giants and conquer people. And so it's not that it's going to be easy, but we have the assurance that no matter what giants we face in the season that we're going into, we have God with us, and God with us is more powerful than anything in this world. 
And so I want to encourage you this morning, and I'm saying that to you this morning as an encouragement, friends, because this word is not for Catherine and me and for the eldership team and the deacons. It is for the church. When God says he's got something new for us and that we've crossed the Jordan, it means you're crossed the Jordan. It means you're walking into a new inheritance. So what are those things that God has purposed in your heart? It's time for us as a church to dream again, to think of the bigness of God. We're not here so we can build build bigger buildings and more of them. We're here to advance the kingdom. The kingdom of God is going forward, and we are part of that process. And so I love what Cameron said. It's not about building a bigger building. It's about putting more cities on the wall. It's about sending more people out. It's about trusting for church plants, for more places of influence. And I think for a while we've lost that ability to, to, to dream because we've been so inward focused, like the nation of Israel. When you're wondering, you're wondering, friends. But the wondering has come to an end. A new day has come. We have to move forward. Every morning I, see, I feel a freshness, I feel a lightness, and I feel a sense that God is going to just open the heavens. Amen? Let's give the Lord a hand. A hand clap. Okay, that wasn't part of my preach, in case you are new. Uh, that's another one of the things that you'll get used to. Um, that's just an introduction. Okay, it's actually an encouragement. The introduction's still coming. <laughs> so this morning we're back in the book of Revelation. We're in uh, the fourth major section found in the book. It's the section titled The Seven Visions. This is actually our final installment in this section. Hey man, who's that? Is that Clayton at the back there? No, I don't see I thought Clayton was here, but he's not. Anyway, it's fun. I'm not judging him. I just thought I saw him with a baby, but it's not Clayton. Anyway, I was going to welcome Hannah here too. Um, but that baby's super welcome too, just so you know. Um, sorry. We're in the fourth section of the book of Revelation. It's the seven visions. It's the last section of it. We're going to do three visions this morning. Just so you know what's coming up, we're going to end our Revelation series for the year now. Believe me, when I say end it for the year, I mean that. It's going to continue next year. This is our 19th preach this year in the book of Revelations, which is pretty cool. We're going through the book slowly. We're going through it in, like very intently. We're trying to figure out what God is saying to us. And then after a couple of kingdom values, we're going to cover Advent. And then before you know it, it's Christmas and New Year. But this section, the seven visions, has exposed us to the supernatural battle that happens between sort of God and Satan, right? It's this big picture of things that happened in eternity past, this war that's waging between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. We are all part of the kingdom of light. Praise God for that. Um, But I do want to say that that word battle can be quite misleading. You know, sometimes when you think of the word God battling Satan, we have this picture in our mind of two adversaries going at it. And the sense with two adversaries is really you don't know who's going to win. we've understood and what we've come to realize is this is a battle that has been settled you know there is no there's not going to be any other winner but God this battle ends in victory victory for God victory for his son the Lord Jesus Christ victory for the power that the Holy Spirit provides to the church to advance and ultimately victory for us as God's people this is a book of victory it's not a book of defeat that's why this book is about hope it's not about doom and gloom it's not about judgment and book is designed by God to give us, as the church of Jesus Christ, hope that he's in charge, that he's moving forward, and we get to go with him. And so we celebrate that with him. This morning, in the last three visions, we're going to come to the end of this sort of section by looking at different things, different 
aspects of judgment. And I want to tell you, there's lots of ways this can be interpreted, and I've said this before, and so I'm going to pause along the way and speak to some of those different things. Verse 14, right the way back through to Genesis chapter 1. I'm just kidding. Revelations 14, verse 14. But let's pray first. Father, thank you for this wonderful word of yours that is between flesh and marrow. I pray that, that this morning that's exactly what would happen, that this preach or this teaching would not be an application of intellect, of understanding, but it would be a product of your Holy Spirit moving through me, through your word. And I pray that you'd prepare our hearts to receive what it is that you have to say, Jesus. Change us this morning, con- transform us, Lord, and give in us a fire, Lord, put out so that we can do the things that you've called us to do in Jesus' name. Amen. So first point for us this morning is that there is a time of more than one harvest. Revelations 14.14 starts off like this. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a in his hand. So this entire vision opens up with John seeing what can only be described as Jesus. Right? He's got these Jesus-like terms that have been power and dominion. He's also got this name, and the name is One Like the Son. That concept before in Revelations, it comes from Daniel chapter 7. And almost, I believe, what is the same vision that John is seeing. He, he's just seeing it from his perspective. And in Daniel 7.13, he says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. If you continue to read this verse, in verse 14, it says, And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. It was given to him nations and tribes and tongues. Not a nation, not a certain group of people, not a special elect super group of saints, but all nations, all tribes, and all tongues. And the kingdom that he was given is an everlasting kingdom. It's a kingdom that can never be shaken, can never be destroyed. I believe that that's a powerful picture of the king that we serve. He is an everlasting king, an everlasting God, who has the victory. But some people believe when you read this descriptor of who this is on the clouds, they believe that it's not necessarily Jesus that's being referred to. It could be an angel that looks like Jesus, that has Jesus-like qualities. And the reason they often say that is because of what the next verses say. So in verse 15, it says, And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come. For the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. The big holdup here, and the big reason why people go in different directions on interpretation, is they believe that surely if this was Jesus sitting on the clouds, if he is the Son of God and God himself, then he wouldn't necessarily need an angel to come from the temple, which is the most holiest place in the universe. That's the temple where the Ancient of Days is seated in order to tell him to begin the harvest, right? After all, angels are under Jesus' control. But Jesus himself told us something very interesting in Mark chapter 13 and verse 32. He said, concerning the day and the hour, speaking about the end times, he says, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. 
Jesus is telling his disciples that he doesn't have the information in order to predict when the end of the world is coming. There is only one that has that ability, the Ancient of Days. Now you can argue with me and say, but aren't they a trinity? Isn't God one but three? Yes, and I don't understand all of this. And believe me, there are parts of scripture I can't understand either. Right? But by faith, I have to believe that what Jesus is saying is true. He was not told and he is not privy to the end of days. This is something that the Father has purposed in his heart. And so Jesus, not knowing or not having the knowledge that it was time to reap and being told by a messenger that God the Father says it is time to reap, I don't believe is a big deal. And so it's my interpretation that this is actually Jesus who's sitting on the clouds. I believe Jesus is the one that's about to bring this harvest to bear. I believe Jesus is the one that's going to reap this particular harvest. And so the more important question or the bigger thing for us to think about and to ruminate on is not who's doing the harvest but rather what is it exactly that's being harvested in this harvest what is it what is the implication of this harvest well for that you have to come back next week just kidding for us to understand that we have to understand the next vision vision six says this then another angel came out of the temple in heaven and he too had a sharp sickle And so now this is the second angel we've been introduced to. He's also got a sickle. And another angel came from the altar, which, by the way, is in the temple. The angel who had authority over the fire. So there's three angels, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, the second angel, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. And so the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. So the question is, is this part of one long extended harvest with multiple events or is this two distinct harvests? The way I interpret this passage of scripture is that this is speaking about two distinct harvests that are happening happening to two very distinct groups of people. It's interesting, the first harvest, the harvest where, we believe, where I believe Jesus is the one doing the harvest, it's described as him reaping the harvest because the harvest of the earth is ripe. And the sense there is he goes and reaps. And if you've ever watched anyone reaping, I don't know if anyone do that anymore. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Now they have machines that do it. But a reaper, like the grim reaper, is a guy with a big scythe or a sickle, right? And he comes in and he cuts down the wheat. That's what you use a sickle for, is to cut down the wheat. I'm not wheat, t- I'm not saying you don't cut anything else with it, but Jesus is essentially reaping the wheat harvest. But if you notice in this second harvest, it's not wheat that's being reaped, it's grapes that are being gathered. And so it's my interpretation that this second harvest, the one about the grapes, the one of the grapes that are being uh, carried away from the vine of the earth, represents the judgment harvest, the harvest of the judgment of the world. And I say that because of a few things. First of all, the angel that gives the instruction to do this reap, the, re- the reap of the, of the grapes, is actually an angel that is described as the angel who has the authority over the fire. Now, if you remember Revelations, you'll know that fire indicates judgment. What's more, it's the same place where the enemy, Satan, the dragon, his beasts, all of his allies, including Babylon, as well as everybody who chose the mark of the beast, in other words, chose the kingdom of darkness, is going to be sent into the lake of fire. The second reason I believe this represents the harvest of judgment, at least the grapes represent the harvest of judgments, is that these grapes are harvested from the vine of the earth. 
There is a sense that this is not the kingdom vine. This is not Jesus, the true vine. This is a vine where people, people are attached to, a vine that provides them the ability to take comfort in the things of the world, the systems of this world. The world has become the security. These are those who are not only in the world, but who are also from the world. They have no heavenly perspective. They do not think on eternity. Obviously, we as believers are in the world, but we're not of the world. We know that this world is not where we find our comfort. This world is not where we find our peace. And this world is surely not where we find our salvation. We know there's a kingdom coming. And so the sense that these people have made this earth their home, it, they will be reaped in judgment. The third thing that I believe represents the fact that this angel comes to judge the world is that he comes from the altar. Now, the first angel that we saw giving Jesus the instruction comes from the Ancient of Days. He comes from the temple. This also comes from the temple. But this angel comes from a very specific place in the temple. And if you remember, or if you remember some of the previous things we've dealt with in Revelation, the altar is a very important place. In Revelation chapter 6 and verse 9, just to remind you, this is what we encountered during Sorry, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? You see, there's a sense in this grape harvest that all of the people in this world who have either died for their faith, literally in the physical sense, in other words, all of those who have become martyred for their faith, or equally, all of us who have laid down our lives for the sake of the gospel by picking up our cross daily and following Jesus, there is a sense that vindication has finally come. If you remember in Revelation 6, they asked the Lord, when is this all going to happen? You know what God says? He says, the time is not yet. Wait a little bit longer. He gives him a white robe and he says, rest, just wait. Well, guess what, friends? The time has come. The harvest is ripe. They are now being gathered up. And the vindication of these saints is now coming to bear. As a reminder, vindication is not revenge. None of us here want to see anybody go to judgment. None of us here are thinking about people who have hurt us because of our faith, saying, Lord, smite them with your fire. That's not the life of a believer. The vindication that God brings is a vindication of who he is. It's a vindication that God is God and everything that we've believed and held so dear to is actually fundamentally true. That day, friends, is coming. And then lastly, I believe that the second harvest relates to judgment because probably the most obvious thing that it says is that these grapes aren't going to be poured out into a festal gathering. They're not going to be drunk while we celebrate who God is. No, where are they going? They're going into the wine press of the wrath of God. And that tells me that if the second harvest is about the harvest of judgment, then the first harvest, the harvest where I believe Jesus was reaping the wheat, must represent the harvest of the righteous. And it's interesting that that harvest comes first. It comes first. It comes before the judgment of this world. And we'll get to that a little bit later. The righteous people that are being harvested are not those of us who think they're good people. They're not those of us who walk around saying, Jesus loves me. They're not those of us who think, well, God loves everyone. And yet, look, the fact is, Jesus does love you. Please don't like, stand up and say, heretic, Jesus does love you. 
But let me tell you, often what we do when we say to the world Jesus loves them is we're giving them sort of the decision to try Jesus out for a while, to test his love for them. Okay, well, just why don't you give Jesus a chance? No, we don't need to give Jesus a chance. He's God. The fact is what we should be telling people is you're a sinner just like I am, and the only way you can get into heaven is because of his blood. And Jesus does love you. He loves you very much, enough to die for you. But it's not going to help you that he loves you just so that you can be his friend and you'll get into heaven. It's not because we read our Bible every day that we're going to heaven. It's not because you came to church that you're going to heaven. It's got nothing to do with your works, your righteousness, your self-righteousness, or any good deed that you've ever done. We get into heaven because we, on this side of eternity, chose to lay down our pride and say, Jesus Christ, I cannot do this without you. I believe that what you did at the cross is final, and I'm going to accept your righteousness in place of my sin, and because of that, I can be accepted into the presence of God. That's how we get there. That's the only way we get there. John the Baptist, I love this passage, he's talking about Jesus, the one who sandals, he's unworthy to die. And he says in Matthew 3, he's saying, the one that comes after me not, will not just bring a message of repentance. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's what he says. That's what we were trusting for this morning. And so if you think it's weird that we make time for the Holy Spirit, don't, because we want to be baptized in the power of God. We need his power. But he says this in verse 12. He says his winnowing fork is in his hand. It's a picture of cleaning up the wheat. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff, chaff, whatever it is, he will burn with unquenchable fire. You see, John the Baptist knew that there are only two harvests that can happen in this world. Just like there's only two kingdoms we can choose. There's those of us who walk with the seal of God in our hearts, which is not a literal seal, it's a promise of the Holy Spirit in us, Christ in us is the hope of glory, and the other choice is choosing the mark of the beast. Not a tattoo, not something outward, not a credit card, not a bank account, not something that you're going to stumble into, not a particular car brand, not if you buy something from Costco, none of those things are the mark of the beast. It is those who chose to reject Jesus' offer of salvation. There's only two harvests. But this picture of harvest is important. Because it gives us, as believers, something that I want us to consider this morning. You see, the picture of the harvest tells us that God's judgment depends on the choices we make this side of eternity. Think about that. Every single human being on this earth has a choice to make. The choice that we make this side of eternity has eternal consequences, friends. What it also tells me, friends, is that the seeds that we sow into people's lives this side of eternity have eternal consequences. And so when we think of our family, when we think of our friends, when we think of the lady at Starbucks who's giving you a coffee, what are you sowing into her life or his life? Are you sowing seeds of life or are you sowing seeds that will lead to death? It makes us think about our discussions, our conversations, the superfluous things that we joke about around. Are those things going to bring life or will they bring the harvest of judgment? And so every moment of every day, and this is not about condemnation, friends. Believe me, I'm preaching to myself. Do we speak those seeds of life? Because one day the harvester will arrive and he will take what he needs to take. And if we've had the, what's the word I'm looking for? It's coming, the privilege of sowing life. Friends, it will be accounted to us as righteousness, as a reward, not for salvation. The harvest tells us that there's a time gap between sowing and reaping, right? I don't know about you, but I often look around this world and I think to myself, man, there's some people out there that I, that I think God should harvest now, right? I mean, I know, Lord, forgive me, I'm terrible. I'm also a human being, just like all of you guys. 
But sometimes we look and we think, but how do these people get on with what they're doing? How do, we, how do child you know, murderers get on with what they're doing? How do rapists carry on? How do serial killers not get found out sometimes? Sometimes they're dead and then we figure out they're serial killers. And we start to wonder, how is it that the world can operate with impunity? That people can just do what they want to do, live their lives as if there's nothing else. And they get away with it time and time again. Let me tell you something, friends. There is a time of harvest and it will come and they will be accountable for their harvest. Just like the seeds that we sow to life will one day bring us a reward. We want everything now, but God's principles are sowing and reaping, friends. We sow and one day we will reap. It tells us, that the timing of the harvest is in God's hands. And that probably should give us a huge amount of assurance this morning because what it's saying to us, and the reason the Father is the only one who knows the day and the hour, is because He has a people that He is gathering right now. You know the Great Commission? of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded? That's not just about countries, Lord. I mean, Lord, people. The Lord is talking to us about ethnic groups. He's saying every single people group in the entire world, you need to go and preach the gospel to them. Make sure they've heard the gospel. Make sure they've been introduced to the, to the gospel. Today is the day where we celebrate the persecuted church. In fact, I want to encourage you to go and pray for the persecuted church today. Those are the people that God wants us to reach. And the harvest only comes when God's number is complete. When the full number of His saints have been redeemed, then the end will come. That, friends, is a huge encouragement to me. Because it means right now we have time. The second point for us this morning is that the judgment that will come, the judgment of the unrighteous, is going to be global. And it's going to be severe, friends. Verse 20 of Revelation 14 says, In the winepress, this winepress of the wrath of God was trodden, Outside of the city, that's important, we'll talk about that. And blood flowed, flowed from the one press as high as the horse's bridle for 1600 stadia. Man, I don't know about you, but when I read that verse, I mean, this is one of those verses in Revelations when I was a youngster that used to drive fear into me. I'm like, what is going to happen? We're going to be swimming in blood. It's going to be blood everywhere. It's going to be madness. It's like you want, uh, not that anyone here in this room has ever watched Carrie because we're all believers. But you know what I'm saying? Like, this is blood and it's messy and it's gory. And you're like, what is going on? This is a crazy picture. I don't think that, the, you, 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 some of you are shaking your head thinking I'm never coming back to this place. <laughs> I don't think that we should read this too literally. Just like I don't believe a giant-sized Jesus is going to come down from heaven and put one foot in Israel and one foot here and he's going to have a big sickle and he's going to reap us all up. I don't believe that. It's a symbolic language. We need to know when to separate literal from symbolic. This is a symbolic picture. Joel puts it this way in Joel 3.13. He says, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Go in. Tread, for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for the evil is great. I mean, Joel did a good job there, but the picture in Revelation is still more scary. The horse's bridles will be up to the, it'll be up to the horse's bridle in blood. Now, if you've ever ridden a horse, I have the privilege of having a daughter who loves horses and loves to ride horses. I learned about bridles and all sorts of things this past week as I took a horse riding and saddles and country saddles and western saddles and normal saddles. And it's a whole very complicated to ride horses, I've got to tell you, all you cowboys out there. But you know, a horse's bridle is right up, up to its nose. It covers its actual nose. What the text is saying is that the judgment of God is going to be so severe, it's as if horses can't even swim in it. That's how bad it's going to be. And what is the judgment? We heard about it last week. It's eternal torment. Nobody wants to go through that. 
1600 stadia, the distance that this blood will flow is a number that reaches to about 200 miles. If we read, a lot of people think, well, that's because it represents Palestine. This is not just about Palestine being covered in blood. It's telling us this is a worldwide judgment. There isn't a place on earth that will be excluded from the judgment of God. Every place, every tribe, every tongue who has not turned to Jesus Christ will be judged. There's some interesting numerology there. We won't even get into it this morning. But there is good news for us. The text says that the judgment of the unrighteous, this judgment of the wrath of God's wine press, is going to happen outside of the city. And that's important. If you remember Revelation chapter 11, we spoke about the two witnesses. And I said to you, I don't know, my personal interpretation is it's not Moses and Elijah, it's a representation of the church. Before that, John is asked by God to measure the temple. He says, go out and measure the dimensions of the temple. And what I said is that collective picture is a picture of God sealing his church. Who are those that are in my church? How do they come into my number? Protecting those people. And then the witnesses go out and have a powerful testimony. We're living in the gospel age, friends. From the day Jesus came to the day he comes back, the church has a powerful witness. More believers today are turning to Jesus than ever before. Fact, not fiction. We can speak the truth today and people can still hear, which means that we're living in an age where our voice and the seeds that we sow matter. Then the witnesses die. For three and a half days, they lay dead outside of the city, being laughed at, derided, persecuting. Persecution is coming, I told you, and it's going to be severe. There is going to be a moment in time where we as the church even look like we're dead. But it says after three and a half days, the, the spirit, the breath of God entered back into them. And then it goes on to say, and they were removed. You see, the one being trodden outside of the city means it is outside of us as the kingdom. The kingdom of God, just like the wheat harvest happens before the great harvest, means that we are safe and we are secure when this judgment happens. And while that must give us all a great lot of comfort this morning, we think, thank you, Lord. Let me tell you, it means devastation for the rest of the people that are left behind. The third point, the seventh vision that we're going to cover now, reminds us that we, as God's people, will be victorious. Then I saw another sign in heaven. Great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Now it's interesting because this beginning part of chapter 15 is actually part of the fourth section. It's not part of the next section, which is the bowls of God's wrath, the seven bowls. And so you have to ask yourself the question, why is it that John is including it in this section? Why is it part of this section of the vision? I believe it's part of this section of the vision because God wants to remind us of one thing. And that is that his judgment will run its course, total and final. This is not a half job. He's not here to do little bits. He's going to finish what he started, friends. And you might think to yourself, but that sounds super harsh. Why doesn't he just stop and relent? How many times has God relented? Time and time again. He's relented against the cries of the nation of Israel when they turned their backs on him. He's relented from destroying cities, friends. But there is a point in time where, guess what? Unfortunately, judgment needs to run its course. Why? Because what God is creating for us is a new heaven and a new earth. An earth where there is no more sin, where there is no more wickedness, where there is no more evil, where there are no more tears, where there is no more crying, where all we have is an eternity in the presence of our King. It's the eternal Eden, friends, that is going to be built for us as God's people and that we will live in. And there is no evil in it. And they sang a new song of Moses. 
the servant of God. Sorry, before that, verse 2. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. So all of this destruction has run its course. And the picture here that's actually being put forward to us is reminding us of what happened in Exodus. It's actually throwing back to the account of the Red Sea. Remember how the nation of Israel was running away from Pharaoh and the nation of Israel crosses this. The picture here in Revelations is reminding us of that, except there's a difference. The sea in this picture is absolutely calm. Now the sea in Scripture is always about the world. It's chaos. It's tossing. It's chewing and froing. It's bubbling and frothing. It's the sense that there's this restlessness in this world. But this sea is as still as glass. There is nothing on it. It's completely like a mirror. The chaos of this world has been dealt with. The restlessness of this world is gone because the judgment is finished. But there is a sense that in the sea... There is something of a picture of what went down. I can only imagine that when Moses stood on the other side of the Red Sea and God closed the sea on him, he must have started to see all sorts of crazy things come to the surface. Perhaps horses and chariots. I don't suppose chariots would sink. But people, right? Now, it's not as gory as that in this picture, but there is a sense that there is fire in the sea. In other words, when we look to the sea, when we as God's people stand on the other side of the judgment, we will see that what took place was final. And as a result of that, they worship God and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Notice they say, Amazing are your deeds. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. I don't know about you, but sometimes I've always thought to myself, I'll stand in eternity, watch judgment happen, and think to myself, mm, I don't know if that person really deserved it. What this text tells me and what you need to take to heart is that whatever judgment happens, understand one thing. You will see it for what it is. You will never, ever question God's motives. You will always say, wow, Lord, I understand. I understand. I understand. O King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Friends, this song is a song of victory. And unlike Israel, who stood on the other side of the Red Sea, who hadn't won the war but had just won a battle, we, because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, have not just won a battle, we've won the war. Jesus has won the war. And that reminds us, and it should remind us this morning, that there is a war waging right now for people's souls. There are people outside of this building, maybe in your lives, perhaps friends of yours, are struggling with what's going on and what decision to make how to move forward maybe some of them are desperate and depressed maybe some of them don't even know the good news of the gospel there is a war waging i want to tell you a story real quick many years ago there's this interesting story and the title of the article in the newspaper in england said butler dusted deadly bomb for 24 years let me say that again butler dusted deadly bomb for 24 years let me explain what happened in that picture this bomb during second world, the Second World War fell into this fancy state, a castle, essentially, and it never went off. Someone found this bomb and thought, well, that'll be a great mantelpiece item. Let's put it on our mantelpiece. They didn't know what it was, or maybe they did, and they were just crazy. Maybe the kids were trying to play a joke on their parents. I'm not sure. But anyway, this butler, I mean, he doesn't know what it is, and so what he does is he polishes this bomb, and he dusts this bomb for 20 years. His name was Charles Patience. It's amazing his second name is Patience. He was certainly patient, that guy. Anyway. 
he does this bomb, he cleans this bomb, never actually understanding that this is something that could not only kill him but destroy the entire family. Until one day, he dusts the bomb so much, I mean, this guy was serious about his job. He's polishing that thing, it's like shining, but it falls off the mantelpiece and it lands on his foot. That day, there was an officer of the British Army standing there, and he looked at this thing, and he realized just exactly what had happened. And he was like, oh my gosh, that's a bomb. You know? And he picks this thing up, realizes, realizes that the bomb is live, and it can detonate at any moment. Now, you're probably wondering, what is the point of the story? Why am I telling you this? Well, here's the deal. That's exactly how people in this world operate. This is how the world operates by and large. People are surrounded by danger, deadly danger. Every moment of every single day, and all they do is dust it and polish it. They delude themselves into thinking that they're indestructible and that this world will just continue the way it always has been and will continue forevermore. They think that there's nothing after this. But all it takes to get their attention is a bomb expert, somebody who knows the truth, to go up to them and say, do you realize what you are playing with? Do you realize the destruction this thing can cause in your life and your family's life? Do you actually understand what you're doing? Do you know that God put the book of Revelation in the Bible so that we could become those bomb experts? This book isn't here to pique our curiosity. I know we love to debate it and argue about it and have fun about it and is this, that, and what, what. This book here is a bomb-diffusing manual. The question is, how seriously do we take the contents of this book? Honestly. How seriously do you take the contents of this book? As it relates to people that are lost, that are on their way to hell, that are on their way to the wine press of God's judgment, who will be tormented for eternity. How seriously do you take the contents of this book? How seriously do I take it? And I can tell you now, in my own life, I don't take it seriously enough. Because if I truly did, man, my heart would be breaking every moment of the day. I'd be out there witnessing 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days of the year. I praise the Lord for the Holy Spirit and the grace of Jesus Christ that gets me into heaven. But let me tell you, there is more to be done, friends. How seriously do you take the contents of this book as it, as it relates to your own lives? I, I asked myself that question this morning. Lord, I don't take this book seriously enough when it comes to me. There are parts of me that need to be woken up again. There are parts of me that need to be reformed. Because you know what? I'm not living my life as if this was the last moment of, of the day that I could ever live. And again, I don't want to condemn anyone. I'm not here to condemn you. Please. I'm here to encourage us this morning. There is a battle waging. There are people going to hell. And praise God, if you're a believer this morning, that you're not. But it doesn't negate the responsibility that Jesus gave us at the cross to take this message of salvation and to preach it to the entire world. You know, Jesus says something in Matthew chapter 32. I'm going to read it for us and then I'm going to close and we're going to sing a song. Sorry, Matthew 9 verse 36. He's looking at the nation of Israel and the, Israel, the Israelis have lost their mind. The nation of Israel has gone crazy, right? They're following all of these weird things. They're religious. They're full of religion, full of self-righteousness, full of their own stuff. He says when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless. Sometimes I feel like the church has become harassed and helpless, friends, because we've become more concerned about ourselves. 
our comfort, our lives, what's good for us. We become concerned about the programs and what this church offers me and what that church offers me and what I get here and are the balloons the right color and did we offend anyone with these balloons or not today? I don't know. But we, sometimes I feel like we are harassed and helpless because the culture is pushing in. They're like sheep without a shepherd. The world needs shepherds. Jesus is the ultimate one. Then he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. There's so many people waiting, but the laborers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out the laborers. I want the band to come up. Friends, we are the harvesting agents that God has provided on this side of eternity. And make no mistake, if we don't take that responsibility seriously, that harvest is going to happen regardless. But right now, for this very short moment of time, we have the potential in us to bring those seeds who maybe right now are going to become grapes and turn them into seeds that will become wheat. Not by our own strength, not by our own power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Can I ask us to stand?